Well, please have uh, your Bible also open at Mark chapter 7. You can find it on page 10,010, and we're going to be looking at that whole section together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your living word, that you are a God who speaks. You are not a silent God that we have to guess about. You have given us your word, and it is a living word. Please help us to hear your word. Please help us to prepare our hearts as we come to hear your word, that we would treasure it for what it is, not the words of man, not the words of tradition, but words of God, words from our creator. So Lord, please help us to hear them. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, now, something, I don't know about you, something I've always found, I guess, morbidly fascinating is the lengths that some religious adherents will go to with their devotion to their God. You know the sorts of things I mean? But not, not only that, the actual things that they will do on the kind of assumption that those things will please their gods. Let me give you some examples. So obviously there's the suicide bomber. It's baffling, isn't it? Someone so convinced that they will please their God by blowing themselves to pieces in hope of taking some of their enemies of their religion with them. It's baffling, isn't it? Do you remember the men who drove that uh, that Jeep into the Glasgow airport about, uh, was it about 10 years ago or so? I think it's 2007. Those two men expected, wanted to die in that attack. One of them was a UK-born NHS doctor working for a hospital nearby. Unbelievable. The other was an engineer, both intelligent men, determined to die for their religious cause to, 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 to impress their God. In Hinduism, there's, you know, there's all of that uh, yoga and meditation, surrendering yourself to God, spending hours and hours trying to, in some way, please your God. In Islam, you have the five pillars, don't you? Which include fasting, you know, putting your body through things, almsgiving, prayer, five times a day, got to be five times a day. And if you can do it, the perilous hajj that they do, the pilgrimage to Mecca, which claims many lives every year as well. But listen, Christianity is not without its fanatics as well, is it? Those who go to peculiar lengths thinking they will please God that way. Maybe you've heard of the iconic, if you haven't heard of him, you'll know the picture, the iconic man, Simon Stylites. There he is, or Simeon Stylites. Simeon developed, let me tell you about him, he developed a zeal for Christianity at the age of 13, following a reading of the Beatitudes. And he entered a monastery at the age of 16, From the first, he gave himself up to the practice of austerity, you know, more severe than the austerity that we have because of our recessions. An austerity so extreme and to all appearances so extravagant that his brethren in the monastery judged him to be unsuited to any form of community life. (laughs) You just don't play with others. They asked Simeon, or Simon, to leave the monastery. So he shut himself up then in a hut, for one and a half years, where he passed, at one point, the whole of Lent without eating or drinking. So 40 days without eating or drinking. When he emerged from the hut, his achievement was hailed as a miracle. 
And so he later took to standing continually upright so long as his limbs would sustain him. Incredible, isn't it? Just trying to stand and stand. Imagine trying to do that. And so in order to get away from the ever-increasing number of people who came to him for prayers and for advice, leaving him little time for his private austerities, uh, Simon, Simon discovered a pillar which had survived in some nearby ruins in Syria. That's where we know this iconic picture from, isn't it? And he formed a small platform on the top, and he determined to live out the rest of his life on that platform. Uh, he got given food by boys who came from the nearby village, passed him up parcels of bread and goat's milk. And the first pillar that Simon occupied was a little bit more than, they say, about, about nine feet high. But he then later moved to other platforms, at the last in a, ser- in a series of platforms, which was actually 15 metres, they say, 50 feet from the ground. And he lived up there, on top of it, on a platform that was about a metre by a metre. Imagine that. Edward Gibbon, uh, in History of the Decline of the Fall of the Roman Empire, describes Simon's life like this. Listen, in this last and lofty station, his 15-metre column, the Syrian anchoret resisted the heat of 30 summers and the cold of as many winters. Habit and exercise instructed him to maintain his dangerous situation without fear or giddiness and successively to assume the different postures of devotion. It's like yoga going on up there. He sometimes prayed in an erect attitude with his outstretched arms in the figure of a cross, but his most familiar practice was that of bending his meager skeleton from the forehead to the feet. And a curious spectator, after numbering 1,244 repetitions, at length desisted from the endless account. The progress of an ulcer in his thigh might shorten, but it could not disturb this celestial life. And the patient hermit expired without descending from his column. Staggering, isn't it? Isn't history fun? (laughs) Now, you see, there seems to be this universal logic, doesn't there, in the human heart. You, You can't avoid it. It insists that... When we demonstrate some kind of discipline or effort or devotion or hard work in the service of God or in devotion to God, it makes him more pleased with us. It's a a logic that's programmed into our heads and into our hearts, isn't it? We universally believe, as human beings, that the the outward things that we do are a crucial part of getting God's approval. But in the passage that we just read this morning, Jesus completely blows that belief out of the water. He's not not having it, is he? It's completely the wrong way around. And if you're still then buying into that kind of, any form of that kind of outward religiosity, religious activity, in an effort to try and earn God's approval, then you need to listen up this morning and hear God's word, not man's words. This section of chapter 7, most of the first half of chapter 7, breaks into two parts. Uh, It deals with two interconnected issues I want you to see this morning. Jesus, first of all, challenges his hearers to make a decision. 
Are you going to obey man's words or are you going to obey God's word? Which one's got the priority in your life? That's the first question, isn't it? And then the second one is, are you going to focus on what's outside and external or are you going to pay attention to what's going on inside you, your actions or your heart? So first then, in verses 1 to 13, which are you going to obey? Which are you going to give priority to? Man's words or God's words? Now, Jesus has just arrived across the lake at the town of Gennesaret on the north of the Sea of Galilee. And he and his disciples have been visiting towns, going northwards. Soon we're going to read about him being in the vicinity of Tyre and up right up in the north, in the Gentile areas of the country. And somewhere along the way, Jesus has got into this little back and forth we just read about with the Pharisees and the law experts. And it's all regarding cleanliness. Take a look with me, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash or bath. I think is some people would say that word is, unless they bath. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So Mark makes two things really clear here about this delegation of religious experts that have come up from Jerusalem. The first is, they're out to get Jesus. That's been made very, very clear to us. One commentator calls them the theological hitmen. That's what they are. They're theological hitmen. They were following Jesus around scrutinizing his words, taking a really close look at his ministry, even the behavior and the conduct of his disciples, trying to find something on him to eliminate him. Secondly, they were obsessive about cleanliness. I mean, we're told here the nation was obsessive about it, but they were on another level of obsession about cleanliness. There'd been something of a religious revolution a couple of centuries earlier, you see before Jesus' time. The Jews knew that God required a pure people, a clean people. I mean, that principle's in the Old Testament, isn't it? And so they read the rules and they read the regulations that were written by God in God's law uh, and all of the regulations that were given to a particular group of people, the Levites, who served in the temple. And they looked at all of those cleanliness rituals now, those were not rules that were commanded of the common people. But isn't this how it always goes? Surely, if it was good enough for those that were going to be really clean, right in God's service, maybe that, that's what we should be pursuing. We've got to go for the utter heights of cleanliness. If, it, if God was pleased with the priestly cleaning rituals, then surely shouldn't all of them be doing those things? It's not possible to be too clean, is it? Really, let's be on the safe side. And that's the Pharisee thinking, isn't it? Let's, let's be as clean as we can. And with logic something like that, their, their washing rituals started to be followed by all who were keen to please God, or at least appear, uh, to, to, keen to appear to be so. So everybody was into this stuff, special ways of washing, getting the water on the hands, letting it drip off. And I guess it's kind of like how surgeons wash, isn't it? They have a special way of washing. And they'd have this little ritual to make sure it was was really, really effective. 
And they were, of course, these rituals were then added to, because you can always improve on things, can't you? And so the rabbis came along, and they thought up other ways of making sure you were even cleaner and you stayed less defiled. And so you get all of these writings that were added to what was called the Mishnah, the traditions. The biggest area of teaching in the Mishnah was on cleanliness, in that whole collection of teachings, all about cleanliness. There were apparently about 185 pages given over to being clean. 35 of them were just on washing vessels and other common implements that you used, how to clean things properly in your house. It's amazing, it's remarkable, isn't it? One author writes that a rabbi who once omitted washing his hands before eating bread was excommunicated. I mean, this was serious stuff. It's also reported another rabbi who suffered imprisonment under the Romans nearly died because he used his ration of drinking water to ritually wash up before eating. Well, in Jesus' day, the scriptural rituals of purity were so fenced and refenced, like they did with the Sabbath regulations, that the concept of true inner purity had been actually, ironically, trivialized. Inner purity, trivialized, and, and made into something that's just about cleaning the extremities, cleaning the outside. Well, with all that said, you can see why they wanted to ask their question in verse 5. Take a look with me. So, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? So here's the disciples. Notice how Mark has just told us, if you flick back to the end of chapter 6, Mark's just told us what they've been up to. They've been ministering to sick people, and he specifically mentions in verse 56 there, in the marketplaces, plural, lots of marketplaces. They've been all over the marketplaces in every town that they've visited. Sick people, marketplace, that's a recipe for contamination. It's the place where all of the unwashed are gathering, gathering together. A place where all kind of, I mean, think about a marketplace, it's where all the rubbish is, and there'll be animal carcasses hanging and flies buzzing around. It's a dirty place. And in verse 4, Mark comments that when a Pharisee came in from the marketplace, he's got to get himself clean. He's, he's, he's changing his clothes, he's having a bath. And these disciples, well, they're just coming in off the marketplace and tucking into their food like our children do without even washing their hands, at least not properly. I wonder whether they did wash their hands, but just not quite the way that you're supposed to if you're really serious about cleanliness. Now, the theological hitmen here figure they are on some really solid ground. They've got Jesus here because you can't argue with it. I mean, you can see it happening in front of you. They've got 185 pages of Mishnah behind them. The teaching of the rabbis is on their side. But Jesus takes them apart. Have a look at verse 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Then Jesus says to them, you have let go the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. 
a good summary. Jesus pulls out a prophecy from Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah nailed you here. This is exactly you, right here. This prophecy is about you, he says. It's you completely. You're all talk. It's all do this and do that, and don't do this and don't do that, but there's no heart. You don't really care what God wants. You don't really care why God wants it. You're not thinking about that. You just want to live by a religious checklist that you've got no real reason for understanding why it's, it's even there. The worship is vain, he says. It's empty. It's without substance. It's pointless. Why? Because the rules they've chosen, and this is the key, isn't it? The rules they have chosen to follow aren't God's rules. They're rules from men. Rules from men. It's what we call legalism. And legalism is a horrible poison. And it's a horrible poison in the church too. And we need to be aware of it. Both Jesus and John the Baptist, they had a way of describing the Pharisees. They described them as vipers. Remember that? Both of this. And interesting, isn't it, that both John and Jesus call them vipers. I wonder if the reason for this was because of the poison of their legalism. It's their big thing, wasn't it? Poison works slowly through the whole body, doesn't it? It coagulates the blood until the heart can't pump it round anymore. Legalism is the requiring of people to keep the rules made by men. And it is poisonous because it causes people to believe that there are factors outside of the power of Christ that dictate our salvation, that dictate our worth to God, our value in his kingdom. And furthermore, legalism makes you live in fear, constant fear of losing favor with God. That's what legalism will do. It is an insidious poison. And brothers and sisters, we have to be really careful here. It's a tricky balance to get, isn't it? We mustn't go beyond what is written in God's word. We mustn't do that. Be very careful. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. When you're applying God's word, it has to be done really carefully. Don't let a bit of poison get in there. God receives sinners purely on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice for them on the cross. We know that, don't we? Don't contaminate that. It's not on the basis of anything else. Everything was done there and then on the cross. Let us never give the impression that anything else is true. The Pharisees elevated the teaching of men. They taught them to the people as, as commands to be obeyed. And that was bad enough. But it gets worse than that. So Jesus follows up with an example just to finish off this section and to really uh, nail it down, as it were. Verse 9, have a look. He said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to obey your own traditions. So not only are you teaching your own traditions, you're actually setting aside God. You're removing God. You're getting rid of God's word. You're trampling on God's word, actually. And in verses 10 to 12, Jesus brings up a brilliant example. And he says it's just one of many later on. But it's about the teaching, a man-made teaching of something called Corban. Got nothing to do with Jeremy Corbyn. 
even if Pete Woodcock thinks it has. It's a word that simply means, and Mark defines it for us, doesn't he? Devoted to God. Korban, devoted to God. So the rabbis encouraged people to show their religious zeal. And what better way of showing your religious zeal than to come to the rabbis and to say, everything I have is, I, I give it to God. I am devoted to God. All my stuff, it's all, it's Korban. I'm, do, I'm Korbaning the whole lot. And everybody's like, yes, that's a, dev- oh, that's a devoted man. It sounded admirable. It looked pious. But then let's say your parents became ill, right? Or your parents were bankrupted somehow. They were plunged into poverty. They needed your help. They were calling out for help. Well, you go to the rabbi and say, look, look, rabbi, I, I know I pledged, I pledged to give my, my wealth, my, my, my everything to God. I pledged everything to God. But my parents need help. Can I give some money to them? And the rabbi would say, no. That's the shocker here. He'd say, no, it's Corban. You cannot use it to help your parents. It belongs now to God. Corban was a rule of man. It's a rule of man. It's made up by men. God's commandment said, honor your father and mother. And that cursing them would bring a death sentence. Being a curse to your parents is serious. And Jesus' point was this, not only do you teach the rules of men instead of the word of God, you actually elevate the words of man above that of God. In verse 12, he says, you no longer let them. He's actually saying, you actually stop them obeying the word of God. You stop them honoring, caring for, doing anything for their father and mother. You make them dishonor their parents. By putting your law in place, you're making them break God's law. You're making them forget God's law. Verse 13, Jesus says, you nullify the word of God by your tradition. You nullify, you cancel out God's word for your tradition. And you do many things like that, he says. Strong, isn't it? It's going to get even stronger in the next thing that Jesus has got to say, so watch out. But brothers and sisters, we must always be, doesn't this just show to us, we must always be a a church that has the word of God open. We must always be like that. When we come together to be taught, it is from the Bible. It's from God's word. We're not interested in hearing the, the words of man. I hope you're not. If that's what you wanted, you might as well stay at home and watch YouTube or listen to the radio. Anyone who stands up here to preach should be putting God's word in front of you. That's what we're here for. It must be in front of your eyes. It must be in your ears. Man's words or God's words. Which one are you going to give priority to? Which ones do you want to hear? Which are you going to obey? That's the question, isn't it? And secondly then, as we move into that second half of this section, verses 14 to 23, what's going to be your concern and these are connected. Are you going to be concerned about outside or inside stuff? If you listen to the words of men, here's how it connects. You listen to the words of men, I guarantee your focus will end up on the outside. How you behave, what you do, and what you don't do. But if you listen to the words of God, your first concern will be the heart. And I think that's consistent through the, the whole of the Bible. Now, Jesus turns to the crowd 
He draws the crowd around them. So this has been to the religious leaders up till now. Now he gathers the crowd. Verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Now, Mark doesn't say it, but you get the sense here that after the encounter with what passes for the shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders of the day, Jesus' heart, just like in the previous chapter, has gone out once again to the harassed and the helpless sheep who are being fed a diet of man-made, synthetic teaching that's rotting them and poisoning them. Traditions and rules. And good shepherd that he is, he is going to feed them with the pure, powerful, radical word of God. Now, this would be a shocking statement to the ears of a Jew what we've just read, absolutely world-turning over. It potentially overturns large parts of the books of Moses, actually, if you're taking it on face value. All that teaching about what you can and can't eat or, or touch or associate with. And suddenly, Jesus comes out of the blue and says, nothing outside of you can actually make you unclean by going into you. Nothing can. And Mark rightly notes in verse 19, look, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Like that, kosher is gone. I mean, you know, in Jewish households today, Orthodox Jews, they, they have two kitchens so they can keep the kosher food separate. This is like saying, you don't need two kitchens anymore. That's quite a radical thing, isn't it? You can have one kitchen. The theologian William Barclay calls this well-nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. It's shocking, isn't it? And listen, even the disciples are thrown by what Jesus has just said. Take a look. They come up to Jesus in verse 17, asking him to explain the parable. (laughs) You can't be talking literally, Jesus. Surely it's a parable. And do you notice when Jesus explains it to him, he just repeats the sentence again and then expands the, the, the second half of it just a little bit. It's not a parable. It's plain, straightforward teaching. It's just a statement, a fact of truth, God's truth. Listen to what Jesus says here, because it's not just radical to Jewish ears. It doesn't just throw the kosher regulations out of the window. It's also revolutionary in our understanding of sin and how we're to understand what is clean and unclean. Look at what Jesus says, verse 18. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see? Nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declares all foods clean. And he went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. And that's quite a catalogue there, isn't it, of sin, verses 21 and 22. 
Sin is breaking God's law. And it is that disobeying of God's law that makes us unclean in his sight. Unfit for God's presence. Disqualified from heaven, if you want to put it that way. And here's the big point. Ready for it? <laughs> it's it's just, just to get the logic. You are not sinful because you sin. You sin because you're sinful. Do you hear that? You are not sinful because you sin. You sin because you are sinful. Sin is like a disease in your heart. Your sin is, is kind of like chicken pox. Yeah? Chicken pox is caused by a virus. Yeah? You can't see it. It's a sickness in the body. And that virus breaks out then in all of those horrible, itchy spots. I think I've even got a nice picture for you to put you off your dinner. It breaks out in all of that. Now, listen, the spots are not the disease, actually. They are the symptoms of the disease. You see the difference? The proof, the evidence, the virus is in there. The virus is in that body because you've just erupted in all of these symptoms. And that's what sin is like. It lives in the hearts of men and women and children. And we know we're infected in it with it. Why do we know? Because it breaks out in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts as we daydream. Have a look at how hideous it is. One commentator writes this about that list, that horrible list there. He says, these are hideous words. They even sound ugly in Greek. <laughs> Evil thoughts, dialogismoi, hoi, kakoi. They are evil reasonings within oneself, sexual immorality, porneia, theft, kleptea or kleptomania, murder, moikaia, and also, uh, it is also condemned. Then you've got coveting, which is an appetite for what belongs to others. Wickedness is a heart that is completely equipped to inflict evil on any man. Deceit means to bait, to deceive people. Sensuality involves plunging into moral debauchery in open defiance of public opinion. Envy refers to an evil eye that watches over another's possessions. Slander or blasphemia can take the form of blasphemy against God or slander against men. Pride is the sin of self-praising person who has contempt for everyone but himself. Foolishness describes a person who is desensitized morally and spiritually. What a dark, negative litany. All of that's bubbling away, bubbling away in the heart. A horrible soup. Those, are the, those, those actual acts are like the angry lesions that break out on us, spewing out of the heart of mankind. So the question is, is there no cure for this disease? Surely you want to know, ask that question. Well, what won't work is covering the symptoms over. See, you can put sticky plasters all over the pox. There they go. But that won't cure the disease, will it? You know, all of those religious efforts we talked about right at the beginning of the service, that's exactly what they are. They're like sticky plasters. They might make you look a little bit less unsightly when people look at you, all of that religion. They might hide a little bit the real state of what's going on in your heart, but they have no power to cure 
the disease. If you turn to the, to the rules, to the traditions of men, you will never find a cure for sin. There is no cure there. For that, you need to turn to the word of God, not the word of man. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 2, verse 17? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I've come to call sinners. Jesus is the great physician. He's the great doctor, the doctor of your soul. You might think you have a mild case, or you might know that you are riddled with the symptoms of your sinful heart. But Jesus is the cure. If you turn to him, even this morning, he can wash you clean. Only he can make you 